Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield-account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbuck CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Turning the page as the Trump chapter draws to a close, markets and the world anticipate how a chapter written by President Biden will read. Welcome to a special edition of Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. And so we begin with the coronavirus, where we are now, what the coming months are likely to hold and how we can get to the other side with one of the governors who has been on the front lines in that battle, Democrat Ned Lamont of Connecticut. Uh, we're doing so much more testing, well over 200,000 tests a week now, that um, we are detecting uh, the virus earlier. We are, do have a younger demographic we're seeing. We're getting those folks quarantined earlier. Uh, if folks go to the hospital, we're detecting that earlier. They're spending less time in the hospital, all of which is good news. But um, I'd say the spread, the community spread is pretty um, broad. And it can be in an urban area like Bridgeport, Connecticut, or a more rural area like Norwich, Connecticut. Let's talk about where you go from here, uh, specifically with respect to the vaccine. We've heard a lot about vaccine that may be coming where there's hope on the way, although it looks like we're going to have a tough time getting there as a practical matter. I actually read that your acting uh, head of public health said that you don't have the money for the distribution right now. Is that right? Uh, look, there's no federal money. There's not much federal money. So we're working it as best we can. Uh, Deirdre Gifford is amazing. She's leading our vaccination committee. But if uh, the feds don't step up, we do have a $3 billion rainy day fund and it's raining germs. And this is the we're not going to pinch pennies when it comes to getting the vaccine out to everybody as needed. What are you looking for from the Biden administration? Let's jump ahead just a little bit to January 20. Uh, What would you like to see from the Biden administration? What do you hope for? What do you need? 
Uh, number one, let's all speak with one voice when it comes to the mask, when it comes to social distancing. Uh, we had a dissonance over the last uh, you know, eight months, and that was a confusing message to people. You know, number two, in terms of support, what we need is let's put in place a really strategic vaccination plan. Let's fund that so all of our, our 50 states are working, you know, in lockstep and we get this done appropriately. And thirdly, some state and local aid in particular for the uh, small businesses to help us power through so we can avoid what could be a real knee knocking recession. Uh, let's talk about what it's ch- how it's changing uh, Connecticut, and particularly who lives in Connecticut. What what are you seeing in terms of immigration into Connecticut, for example, from New York, and for that matter, outgoing from Connecticut to other states? I think we've added probably thirty thousand families have moved into Connecticut in the last uh, five or six months. Um, overwhelmingly coming from New York, uh, they want a less congested uh, environment, uh, maybe a backyard, maybe it's easier to self-quarantine, our schools are open. So, but I, I don't wish ill of New York. We're part of the greater New York ecosystem. To me, it's still the global capital of the world and we're gonna work through this together. Uh, what, what about that cooperation? As I understand it, you've been meeting with other regional governors. I think maybe you did just last weekend. What comes out of that? What do you, what do you talk about? What do you come up with as an approach? Well, David, um, I, I can do something with bars. I can do something with restaurants. But if Andrew Cuomo and uh, Charlie Baker up in Massachusetts are not on the same page, it's, it's really meaningless. We've got thousands and thousands of college kids coming back to our region. Some of them coming from the University of South Dakota, where you have a you know 40% infection rate. So we wanted to be very clear, get the message out to universities and airlines in some cases that um, – you have to test before you get on that plane, quarantine, and test when you land. That's how you're going to keep your family safe and your community safe. Well, how is that working as a practical matter? Because in Connecticut, you've got some pretty prominent institutions of higher learning, I will call them. Your colleges and universities are renowned. What are you doing with people leaving your state? And what are you talking doing with college kids coming back into your state as we approach the holidays? Uh, we, we've given the same uh, counsel to uh, our existing colleges because we're sending uh, thousands of kids back across the country. Test these kids before they leave. Uh, do their, um, you know, their states a, a favor, just like we're asking other universities to test the Connecticut kids before they come back here. Governor, you mentioned the 30,000 families that have moved into Connecticut. Have you had some outflow, particularly because of the tax situations? We've heard reports that some people would like to move to, for example, Florida. Are you losing prominent people from Connecticut? Well, first of all, um, the number one state where people leave Connecticut to go to is New York. Hmm. Uh, I think we're all part of the same uh, regional system there. Then it's California. But you're right, Florida, people of a certain age, um, uh, they do migrate to Florida. They've been doing that um, before we had an income tax and after we had an income tax. But I'm just really pleased that Connecticut's getting uh, younger. A lot of young families move into this state. Uh, I feel like we've got uh, the wind to our back there, and we've got to take advantage of that. You mentioned earlier, Governor, your rainy day fund. Talk about that, because there were projections that I think were like $2.5 billion deficit or something in August, and now you're down to $1 billion. I think your credit rating has actually improved as a result. How'd you do that? Well, uh, we, we put in place a rainy day fund, uh, so the legislature couldn't spend that money, and we had a savings in case there was a crisis. Or if revenues collapsed, we wouldn't have to raise taxes or slash social services. So we've got about 15% of our budget um, assaulted away. But this is the time probably to put it to use, especially when it comes to public health, especially when it comes to more testing, more track and trace, and more vaccination support. 
you know, until uh, President Biden steps up and uh, gives us some federal relief. So you don't have that federal relief yet, at least. What's happened with the employment by the state of Connecticut, public employment? Uh, we're not filling any jobs at this point. So our um, our overall state workforce is, um, you know, down a little bit. But if restaurants had to close, and that's a regional decision, that would impact unemployment big time. That was Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont. Up next... The need to take on big tech is one of the few things that Republicans and Democrats appear to agree on. We hear from Harvard's Dan Turullo about how the Biden administration might explore a new way to do just that. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Lawmakers on both sides of the aisle agree that big tech needs to be reined in. Just weeks before the presidential election, the Justice Department filed an antitrust suit against Google, claiming it monopolized the market for Internet search a claim that is unlikely to go away whether or not the Biden administration pursues the case. And it wasn't just competition that was at issue. The CEOs of Facebook and Twitter were grilled by the Senate on how they handle political content and misinformation on their platforms less than a week before the presidential election. Senators pressed them on whether they should amend Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, a federal law from 1996 that effectively shields social media companies from liability for content posted by their users. I asked Dan Tarullo, former Federal Reserve Board governor, about how the Biden administration might take a different approach to regulating big tech. I mean, in the short term, as, as we've all been saying for nine months now, uh, getting a hold of the virus, getting a vaccine out is the single most important thing to continue a cyclical recovery. And that in and of itself will provide a substantial boost, hopefully, through all of 2021 and into 2022. So there, I think, as again, as we've all been saying, the public health issue is the most important economic issue in the short term. There is stimulus, uh, there's a crying need for stimulus to carry us into the period where the, where the uh, vaccine is going to take effect. But after that, you are going to get some tailwinds, basically, from, from the recovery. Longer term, I think it's, it's a question of whether the, uh, the now president-elect is going to be able to manage to get Congress to go along with some of the 
uh, spending priorities that he has. There's an enormous amount he can do just by having control of the executive branch, but it is going to be important for Congress to at least be somewhat cooperative. Well, and when you talk Congress, as a practical matter, we're probably talking the Senate, right? Because as we sit here, we're not going to until late in January, whether Republicans or Democrats have the majority. Right now, I think you'd probably say it's likely that the Republicans will. Is it possible for a President Biden to do business with a Mitch McConnell and get some things done that certainly knows we hadn't gotten done last time? Well, I think I would say, David, if it's possible for any Democrat to do it, it's probably Joe Biden who can do it. Uh, he had, he's not only a veteran of the Senate, uh, but obviously has a longstanding relationship with, uh, the, with uh, Senator McConnell. Um, but if we step back from personalities a bit, I think there may also be some motivation uh, that uh, at least some Republican, a handful of Republican members of the Senate may have. So consider, for example, in uh, infrastructure investment. I mean, that, uh, that elicits raised eyebrows now in Washington, New York, and just about everywhere else because people have been talking about it as a potential bipartisan um, project, and it hasn't happened. But I think when you've got an administration, as we will, that has competence, that coordinates its policies, and that has a consistent set of policies, the chances of working something out become much greater. And consider, for example, if the um, uh, EPA administrator and other heads of agencies in the federal government begin to implement regulations directed towards climate change. And what President Biden is offering is uh, an infrastructure package that can help both accelerate that transition, creating jobs, and also help with the adjustment of uh, those in sectors that are not going to be as vibrant going forward. There's going to be, I think, a temptation on the part of some senators from some affected states to buy onto that. So you dealt with economic policies, certainly when you were a member of the Federal Reserve. Uh, but also before that, in the Obama administration, in the Clinton administration, you really dealt with economic policy. As you look at the economy today, we still have a ways to come back. We've come back some. We still have a ways to come back, and particularly when it comes to jobs. We've still got over 10 million people who don't have jobs today who did before the pandemic. Is infrastructure the best, quickest, more sure way to restore some of that to the economy? No. Coronavirus vaccine is the quickest and surest way to do it because that's what's going to get the service sectors back up and vibrant. I would say, David, the infrastructure investment is a medium to longer term project. It's one that would both improve productivity and create good jobs along the way. But as we've seen it again and again, no matter how many times people say that projects are shovel ready, yeah, they're, they're ready enough that you can start walking to the truck to get the shovel, but they never seem to be ready to have as much impact as quickly as you'd like them to. So you mentioned earlier, Dan, that there are some things that the executive branch can do on its own pretty much without support from a divided Congress. Give us a sense in the economic sphere, what are the things that this president, President Biden, could get done in a reasonably short period of time? Well, uh, within the Labor Department, for example, where you've got the um, uh, Fair Labor Standards Act, he can, his appointees, can make different determinations as to who's covered by uh, minimum wage laws, when you have to pay overtime, that sort of thing, which could have a big effect uh, within the gig economy. Um, he can do things on student debt relief as well. Uh, there there are any number of regulatory actions that he can take. And of course, he can also use such spending powers uh, as he has with already appropriated or soon to be appropriated funds 
to redirect them. So in terms of economic priorities, there's quite a bit that he can do. Uh, where he needs the uh, cooperation of Congress is obviously in increasing total spending or total tax revenues. Should we be concerned at all about the effect of regulation, more regulation, on economic growth. One of the hallmarks of President Trump's administration has been deregulating. He said that was a way to grow the economy. How do we strike that balance the right way? Well, I think that that's always a question, right? Um, uh, in any administration, no matter what its ideological leanings. Uh, but I think in the areas where the president-elect has emphasized most the regulatory agenda, which would be on climate change, which would be on worker protection, uh, and to a lesser extent, financial regulation. Uh, in each of those areas, uh, I think that it's quite possible to get a set of regulations that achieve your regulatory end, but do so in a sensible way that doesn't create unnecessary disruption. And you know, I'd say in the labor area, David, to the degree that there is gonna be increased purchasing power among people in the lower echelons of, of income brackets, that's going to increase aggregate demand because, as we know, people in the lower levels of, of uh, income tend to spend a much higher proportion of their income than those in the upper levels do. So, again, over time is actually an aggregate demand reinforcing effect of some of these. That was Dan Tarullo, former Federal Reserve Board Governor. Coming up, President-elect Biden's plan for the nation's schools will start with a cautious approach to reopening schools safely. We talked with former Education Secretary Margaret Spellings. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Education holds a special place in President-elect Biden's list of priorities. Incoming First Lady Dr. Jill Biden is a community college professor and a member of the nation's largest teachers union. President Trump's education secretary, Betsy DeVos, scaled back federal government involvement in K-12 policy and advocated for charter schools. In addition to reversing DeVos's policies, the Biden administration plans to increase resources for public schools and bridge the funding gap for schools in underprivileged communities. The pandemic's effects on children and families is putting extra emphasis on the importance of education policy, with many parents pleading to keep schools open. I asked Margaret Spelling's former education secretary under President George W. Bush about the importance of figuring out how to get kids back to school. You know, the, the functioning of our schools is central to the recovery of our economy and the functioning of our families and uh, not to mention uh, the education of this next generation of students. So COVID and schools are, you know, top of the pyramid. So what can the federal government, as opposed to state or local government, do on that score? Is it mainly just fight COVID overall, or are there specific things that it can do with respect to our schools? Well, it can do a lot. For starters, uh, we can convene experts that can help us uh, understand what those proper protocols for health and uh, public health and for student safety are, what are best practices, what are we learning from around the country. Uh, secondly, we can help our educators understand how to use space 
Uh, we can understand and help our teachers use technology in, in more uh, fulsome ways and more effective ways. And we can take leadership at the federal level around broadband and device ubiquity. So there's really a lot the federal government can do to respond immediately. How much of it is money? Because I saw that the organization representing superintendents across the school said we need about $200 billion was the number to really help our schools COVID-proof themselves, if that's possible? Well, state and local governments need need resources, and I hope that we'll have that uh, in the next CARES package, either through uh, states or through uh, local school districts. But sure, resources are a part of it, not the only part. What about preschool? I mean, that, the particular focus on preschool, obviously that's terribly important, as you know better than I, in the education process generally, but specifically with child care issues as people try to get back to work. Absolutely. Again, that, that goes to the functioning of our families and our economy. And sadly, we're seeing millions of students across our country who were registered in, in school last spring who didn't show up. Uh, this year, this school year, and many of them at the early grades. And so we must address those issues. We go, we need to go find those students. We need to work with those families. And we need to find ways where they can congregate in small groups and pods, the, the new uh, term of art, uh, so that, so that our, our schools, our kids can learn and our families can function. Would it help public schools to have some more guidance? I mean, I know speaking from experience here in New York, it comes from the governor, not from the federal government, as to when you have to close down, when you can stay open, things like that. Should there be federal national guidance on the conditions under which you should be opening school? Solutions have to be customized to the facts on the ground and the prevalence of the disease on the ground. But can we learn from each other? Can we uh, understand what models are working? Can we understand how best to use technology? Can we respond to, uh, to, to finding students? I mean, what are those best practices? How do we aggregate those and share them? I mean, right now, uh, you know, thousands of school districts are inventing this on their own every day. Uh, individual classroom teachers are having to kind of figure it out on their own, and we can we can do better than that. Can we build and improve our overall education system at the same time we're fighting this this COVID nineteen epidemic? I mean, I'm, I'm mindful of the fact that George W. Bush, your old boss, really made education a priority. You really implemented the No Child Left Behind. Did that work? Do we have to set that to one side, or can we actually, in this crisis, still pursue a fundamental underlying buttressing of our education system? We, we absolutely must, because COVID has revealed the systemic you know, inequities in our system that No Child Left Behind attempted to address through investments in reading, through uh, you know, holding ourselves as adults accountable for the achievement of all students. And you know, it, it, uh, it really bugs me when I hear people say we need to go back to normal. No, we don't, because normal had you know, millions of students left behind, if you will, uh, and we have to you know, reinvent this model to be more responsive to all students. Madam Secretary, you and I have been talking thus far about preschool and K-12. through Let's spend a minute on higher education because that was actually something raised during the campaign. Questions like free tuition and forgiveness of student loans. What do you think is a sensible policy over the next four years with respect to higher education? You know, I think things that will address the immediate needs in the aftermath of COVID around uh, displaced workers, around job training, around getting resources uh, to those individuals, but also alignment between what we in colleges and universities produce and, and the demands of the marketplace today. 
And so we have a lot of retooling to do. I'm in Texas, uh, an oil and gas industry that is uh, you know, likely to shrink over time in some ways. How do we engage that workforce, retool, retrain, uh, so that those individuals can participate in advanced man manufacturing and, and other uh, fields? That was former Education Secretary Margaret Spellings. Coming up, we turn to our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard, to look forward to the surprises, both upside and downside, that may lay ahead in the next four years. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. President-elect Biden is already getting to work on building relationships with the world leaders. I've spoken to, I think, 13, I'm not sure how many, Samantha, but 13 heads of state so far. And uh, uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say it's less about me than the circumstance. There's a degree of enthusiasm and expectation. The president-elect has stressed the importance of strengthening cooperation with allies. I'm letting him know that America's back. Uh, we're going to be back in the game. It's not American alone. One of the most important and difficult issues for the new administration would be U.S.-China relations, which have grown more confrontational since the Obama-Biden administration. When President-elect Biden takes office in January, he will have to deal with the nation's allies and adversaries, all while controlling a global health crisis. I talked with Council on Foreign Relations President Richard Haas about the inbox President Biden will face on January 20 and how he can set his priorities. China's in the inbox and it will be for presidents as far as the eye can see or the brain can imagine. It's one of the structural challenges, shall we say, conceivably an opportunity uh, of the 21st century. And as a result, there's no urgency to get it right in the first couple of months. And the contrast there is with COVID. We may not think of uh, a pandemic as a national security priority, but it's exactly that. And unless we get it under control here at home, we're simply not going to have the bandwidth to do much uh, much of anything uh, else. Obviously, it'll hold back the, uh, the economy. And so I think uh, that becomes the priority. It also, though, has real foreign policy dimensions. There's the question of the U.S. getting back into the World Health Organization. I think that makes sense, even though it's flawed. It's the only way to gradually improve it. I think there's the question of participation in global efforts to produce and distribute and fund any any vaccine or other uh, therapeutics that that may emerge. And I also think there's one other foreign policy dimension, David. If we can get COVID gradually under control here, it sends a powerful message that the United States is back. 
that essentially we can continue to function and that with our technology and despite our political divisions, we can we can still make good things happen in this country. And I think that sends an important message to the world. Richard, if COVID-19 is first on the list, it sure makes sense it would be. Is this the worst possible time for a transition? Because we can only have one president at a time, as you know so well. We're not going to have a President Biden until January 20th. And right now, it doesn't appear that President Trump is deeply engaged in fighting COVID-19, at least to the outside world. I can't see it. No, he's not. It seems to me he's disengaged. He's abdicated. Uh, The only thing worse than a transition, David, would be no transition. And the idea that you would have four more years of an administration that has essentially not taken ownership of COVID-19, that would be a nightmare. That would be a disaster. So you're right. We're going to lose the best part of the next two months when it comes to things like uh, promoting the use of masks, unless some governors get on it. We're not going to have a national testing uh, priority to, to develop one. This situation is going to get worse before it gets worse. I think, though, though by the, the spring, some combination of greater use of masks, uh, the development, hopefully, of some better therapeutics. Obviously, people are optimistic about one or more vaccines. So I think if I had sort of laid out, it's, things are going to get worse before they get worse, before hopefully, ultimately, they will get better. Let's come back to that U.S.-China relationship, uh, because it doesn't look right now like President Xi is making it that much easier for a president like Biden, as they made that move in Hong Kong that caused the opposition to all resign en masse. What do you think is the Chinese position on uh, President-elect Biden? I don't think they have any great hopes in the sense that this is going to usher in a new age of uh, U.S.-China comity. They understand, indeed, there'll probably be more continuity than than change. Uh, if one looks at the people around by uh, Vice President, President-elect Biden, a lot of them have said or written fairly tough things about China, particularly over human rights. If anything, they'll be tougher than the uh, outgoing administration. You have widespread concerns across the political spectrum on trade-related issues, on, on technology. And some of the people around uh, Mr. Biden have worked in places like the Pentagon and have very strong views about Taiwan or, or the South China Sea or what China's doing on its border with, uh, with India. The one constant here, David, is Xi Jinping's China is a very different China. It's more repressive at home. State ownership is not only continuing but growing in the economy. It's more assertive and more capable in its foreign policy. And I think the Chinese are plowing ahead. This is the trajectory they are on. So so as a practical matter, Richard, what is the, the realistic possibility of having multilateral efforts to really cabin or redirect China at all? Because one of the things you write about in your piece is returning to multilateral efforts to some of the international institutions that we have. Sure. Can that really redirect or even a little bit where China is headed? Oh, absolutely. It's called, in a sense, that's what diplomacy is about. The United States has this great structural advantage or potential leverage called its allies and partners. The Europeans could play a big role on things like human rights pressure or uh, technology. Uh, the Asian and Pacific uh, allies could have all sorts of uh, role to play on economics, uh, on strategy. I think there's a real question, though, for the new administration, whether it's prepared to join into what was the Trans-Pacific Partnership and uh, work with other countries in the region to force China to raise its standards whether it's economic standards or, or climate-related standards, in order to have access to half the world's um, markets. So, again, I think the, the real advantage we have is uh, 
is, is changing the means of our policy. I think there'll be considerable continuity in ends. I think the real difference will be the, the Biden administration will work much more with our allies, South Korea, Japan, Australia, the Europeans, partners like India, to, 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 to approach China. And I think potentially, uh, that's what foreign policy is about. It's to shape the, the foreign policy choices of a country like China. And history suggests that's possible. What's not possible which is attack the Secretary of State has been on, is to try to transform China. They're not going to walk away from the Communist Party. They're not going to become liberal Democrats overnight. That is, to me, just folly. But I do think there's a chance we can influence what China does. Uh, Richard, uh, your, the tie of your piece in foreign affairs is, as I say, repairing the world. You draw a distinction between repairing and building. You have to repair before you build, as I understand what you're saying right. here. One of the major issues in repairing is those international alliances of all sorts of uh, of all sorts that you talk about here. How quickly can that be done? Are people waiting for us with open mm-hmm. arms, or has there been longer-term damage that will take long a long time to repair? Well, the answer is both. I think particularly the democratic countries in Europe and Asia are very uh, happy about the turn of uh, events here. Still in the back of their minds, there's some concern about the long-term trajectory of this country. They saw that President Trump got 70 million votes. They believe that Trumpism will be a, a permanent or at least long-standing factor in, in, in politics. So I think there's a wariness about the United States that didn't exist before. If this could happen once, it, it could very well happen again. But in the short run, uh, the European countries, many of the Asian com- countries are extremely happy that you'll have a, a government that is oriented towards multilateralism. We'll rejoin things like the Paris Climate Accords. We'll get back into the WHO. We'll basically believe in diplomacy. And rather than hammering allies uh, every other day, we'll be more prepared to work with them. Who's not happy are the authoritarian governments, the Russians, the Chinese, the Turks, the Brazilians, and so forth. And I expect Israel and Saudi Arabia are, shall we say, uh, less than filled with the outcome here. At the present time, it appears that President Biden will face a divided uh, Congress with the Senate probably, not certainly, but probably being in Republican hands. Uh, typically, we think of the president has, having more maneuver room in the international sphere than domestically. At the same time, you write in your piece that it's time for us to try to reestablish more of a relationship with the Congress and the Senate, actually, and that might be possible. Uh, yeah, I think the value of it is if you if, if the United States could operate in a, fun, in a fashion in which the president just doesn't do things unilaterally, but instead does it with the Congress, it adds a lot more staying power. It makes it much harder for future presidents or Congresses to come along and reverse things. So I think the rest of the world would welcome that kind of a change. That said, it obviously is much more difficult to get things done if they're from different parties and they can't agree. But I do think there's a decent chance, uh, David, we could see agreement on such things as the broad outlines of policy towards China, on things like uh, restructuring supply chains, on uh, policy towards uh, Russia. Uh, I don't even rule out some possibilities for things on, on North Korea. I think it gets tougher to get bipartisan uh, agreement is when it comes to Iran and probably when it comes to trade. Though in trade, the problem might not just be Democrats and Republicans not agreeing. It might be Democrats and Democrats not agreeing. Yeah, that's exactly right. Finally, uh, do you expect a reversal of some of the decisions on troop withdrawals, such as West Germany, talk about South Korea, Afghanistan? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I think Germany for sure. I think the pressure on South Korea will fortunately go away. I think Afghanistan's a little bit more complicated, but uh, my, my guess is we'll end up with some kind of a residual force 
a modest force there. The agreement the United States signed with the Taliban, I think, is a, a really unfortunate agreement. It's not about peace. It's simply basically a cover for the United States to rush to the exits. And rather than promoting peace in Afghanistan, it'll pro- promote a whole new wave of, of violence and, and turmoil. So I think that's likely to be our return. Uh, revisit it. And I think you'll probably also see some questions about some of the other pullouts from the Middle East. So I think we'll kind of see a much more internationalist foreign policy and a, a more multilateralist one. But I don't think Mr. Biden has any interest in going back to the, the era of the last couple of decades when the Middle East overwhelmed the rest of American foreign policy and military involvement overwhelmed the rest of American foreign policy. Fortunately, I don't think we're going back to that either. That was Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.